This is PsychOut, your podcast exploring the human mind and the foundations of human behavior. This is your host, Bert Kasselman, and today we'll be talking about those special qualities that make some people want to do good for society and help those around them, and why some people just want to watch the world burn. Most people, if you ask them, would admit that they want to live in a peaceful, kind society where people help each other. But you regularly see people drop their rubbish in the street, don't pick up after themselves, leave the jobs to other people, and generally just look out for themselves. Why are there some who sacrifice themselves to help society, and there are others who are just out to have a good time and do not care about the consequences of their actions. Today we're going to talk about pro-social behavior. This is helping behavior that benefits other people and society in general. Now, this leads us once again to that nature and nurture debate. Some say that the ability to really look after other people, do good things and help out in society is biological in nature. This is something that's ingrained in us. It is genetically programmed into us to be able to help other people to make sure that our species survive. Others say that it's actually your environment, the nurture that you receive. If you are in a caring society, you're more likely to be caring. If you are raised by parents who show you how to be kind and caring and how to handle conflict effectively, you will then copy them. We are going to look at a few studies that try to work out why some people would take action and others won't. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't be a bystander, do something? This is actually a term that was coined by two researchers, Bob Dali and John Latane, and it pertains to the research they did on why some people will watch something happen that's not right and not interact with it, whereas others will immediately take action and try to help. The study they set up was really not expected by the people who took part in it. The experiment Dali and Latain set up had an unsuspecting subject walk into an office where they met a secretary who then pointed them to a room where they could sit to fill in a form. The subjects didn't realize that behind one of the other doors there was a smoke machine that would blow smoke into this little room where they sat and they would get the idea that there was actually a fire in the building. They did this by letting one person into the room first. A further study had two people in the room. Another study had three people in the room. And a further study had a whole group of people in the room. Now the findings were fascinating. If there was only one person in the room and the smoke started pouring into the room, they would immediately take action, walk next door to the secretary and tell her that it was happening and that she needed to alert everybody in the building. If there were two people, they would sit, look at each other, and do nothing 
until one decided to take action. When there was three, they would sit down, the smoke would keep pouring into the room, they would look at each other, they'd look at the smoke, and it would take much longer before someone finally decided to take action and alert the secretary. When a whole big group of people were in the room, they would not take action. The room would fill with smoke. Some people would even start coughing, yet they would not take action. And when Dali and Latain started reflecting on this, they realized that the big group were all waiting for someone else to take responsibility. They had this thing called a diffusion of responsibility because there were many other people around to take responsibility. When there was only one person, they would react immediately because you're it. Dali and Latain found that your setting has a large influence on how you react. If you live in a rural area, you are more dependent on people because there are not so many of them around and you're more likely to help. If you live in an urban area or a city, there are lots of people around and you hope that someone else will act. They also found that if the situation is dangerous, it's unusual and rarely experienced by the helper, they are, they are sudden and unexpected or they require immediate action to offset the risk to the victim's life and well-being, people are more likely to act. But if it's a non-emergency situation, that are less dangerous, they're familiar occurrences, they're predictable, or they require a lot of planning, people are less likely to act in those situations. Dali and Latane then created their model of helping. And that has decision stages in it. So people ask themselves these questions. Do we notice that help is needed? If you don't even notice that help is needed, you're unlikely to give help. If you notice it, you might give help. Then you ask yourself, is the situation an emergency? If it's not an emergency, you're unlikely to help. If it is, you might help. Then does the potential helper take responsibility? So that's the choice. Will I take responsibility for this or not? If you don't take responsibility, you don't help. If you do take responsibility, you help. Then does the potential helper decide on a way to help? Can you make up your mind on what you do? If you stand there frozen, you can't make up your mind what to do, you won't help. If you can quickly make a plan on what to do, then you will help. And then does the potential helper take action to help? If you can't get yourself to take action, no help is given. But then if you can take action and drive yourself through the fear to do something, help is given. This decision-making process does not usually happen logically in people's minds. They respond to it in the moment. And some people are just frozen in indecision and not inability to take action whereas others very quickly go through the process and take action immediately. Dali and Latane found that there were several social but also personal factors that influence whether someone would show helping behavior or pro-social behavior. The first one was something called the reciprocity principle. This social factor has that expectation that if you are kind to someone, they will be kind to you in return. If you help someone, they'll help you in return. 
Now, this reciprocity principle leads to a lot of helping behavior. Those who feel like someone might be able to help them later and now they help them, they are more likely to act. There's also a social responsibility norm. In many cultures, like in Australia, many people are expected to help others when they're in need. It's the Australian way. In many cultures, being kind to the elderly, and if you think about it, the stereotypical idea of helping old people over the street is a social responsibility norm where there's an expectation that members of the society will provide help to certain people and they will honor them and help them. Now, that social responsibility norm also flows onto donating time, volunteering in societies, and in societies where that is a value, you get very high levels of volunteering. The other factors to look at are personal factors and personal characteristics that influence pro-social behavior. The first one is empathy. Empathy is that capacity to understand and respond to the, the stress or emotions in other people. Now, when they study empathy, they found that your arousal or the distress that is experienced by watching someone else suffering, that, and you feel the empathy as though you are experiencing it yourself, you are more likely to help. Empathy is also elicited by people who are similar to you. So if you're a woman in the situation and it happens to another woman, you're more likely to help. If the person is of your culture, you are more likely to help them. If they are a young person like you, you are more likely to help them. Now, some people even have a genuine desire to help. They feel sad for the victims and by helping the victim, they also feel better. And that leads us on to the next point. Not only the arousal similarity and genuine desire to help, but your mood has a big influence. That's the emotional state and that can affect your perceptions, thoughts and behavior. Now, when you have a bad mood and you are feeling annoyed and irritated, you are way less likely to help. If you're feeling good and you're feeling kind, you're more likely to help. So you know that some people have a general mood most of the time. Some people who are more upbeat and kinder and feel better, they are more likely to help. People who are always gloomy, they are much less likely to help. And then there's the factor of competence. Competence is your ability to respond effectively to a situation or to perform a task successfully. If you've had first aid training, and there is a medical emergency, you are much more likely to help than if you had no first aid training. If you know how to do CPR or mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, you're more likely to help than someone who's never had that kind of training. Another factor is altruism. And altruism is incredibly difficult to study because it's a pro-social behavior that involves selflessness or helping others even if there's nothing to be gained personally or if there's some personal cost involved. These are the beautiful people that we hold up as heroes. Those who go and sacrifice themselves for the gain of others. And this is actually something that is encouraged by many religions and a lot of morals and ethics. 
let's quickly look at this section that we've talked about. We talked about how social factors like the reciprocity principle, the social responsibility norm, and other factors would help people socially to have pro-social behavior. But then there were also the personal characteristics like empathy, the mood you are feeling at the moment, your level of competence, and your levels of altruism that would influence how likely you are to help those in need. Have you ever wondered what drives people that we would describe as monsters? Those who are serial killers, who hurt the innocent or the weak or the poor, those who exploit old people and take their money? Once again, there are debates about what causes this kind of behavior. Some say that it's in our genetic blueprint. It's nature. We are biologically programmed to be aggressive. That humans have always been aggressive and they can become aggressive to get what they want. Others say, no, 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 this is more a nurture factor. It is something that people pick up as they grow up. They look at the role models around them, maybe celebrities, movies, the way that their parents act, the household that they come from. All of these things have conditioning influences on how they behave. And then, of course, once again, most people think that it's actually an interaction of both these factors. The famous case of Kitty Genovese left people totally flabbergasted by how people could be bystanders and watch a young lady being attacked over and over again while they were looking out through their windows and thinking someone else would take action. Kitty Genovese's case was actually the one that inspired Latane and Dali to do their research. Now, if you cast your mind back, we were talking about how the smoke in the room influenced people. If there were many people, they found out that they would not react. Whereas if you were the only one in there, you would react immediately because it was your responsibility to do so. Now, they thought that there were several factors that influenced people's behavior. And as they analyzed it more closely, they realized that they could be generalized. First reason why someone might just remain a bystander and not take action is the diffusion effect. It's the diffusion of responsibility. It's when there are many other people present at the same moment and you hope that someone else will take responsibility and you don't have to put yourself out there to take responsibility. It diffuses your responsibility to other people and that is why people in larger groups don't take action. Now, a second reason might be audience inhibition. Many people are self-conscious and they don't want to stand out and start acting in front of a crowd. They're afraid that they might stumble, do the wrong thing, look like an idiot while they're acting. And that audience inhibition actually stops them from taking action because they're afraid of being judged by the people around them. A third reason might be social influence. It could be the amount of influence that the person feels that they have. Would other people listen to them? Would 
they be able to influence a group to take action and help another person. But it also has another aspect, whether the role models in your life and their social influence on you spur you on to acts of compassion and acts of heroism. These social influences have a tremendous effect on how you view the next phase, and that is the cost-benefit analysis reason. Cost-benefit analysis is what humans do all the time subconsciously. You work out whether the sacrifice you are going to make is worth the pain that it will cause. So if I take action now, will I lose something? Will I be endangered? Will it have the effect? Will I lose something socially? That cost-benefit analysis allows someone to work out whether the action taken will reap benefits or whether it might cost them too much to take action. And because most people work out that if they actually take action, it might cost them something, that makes it very hard for them. An example of this might be if someone comes to a scene where someone is severely injured and they stop breathing and someone needs to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but the mouth is covered in blood, the cost-benefit analysis would say that person's blood might infect my own lungs and that might actually make me sick and I could carry that to my family and many people will choose not to act. But if it is a family member who is loved, you won't care because you love your family member and you want to save their life. So the cost-benefit analysis will tell you that it is worth the sacrifice that you are making at that moment. Another factor that has a large influence on antisocial behavior is something called groupthink. It's a phenomenon that occurs when a group of individuals reaches a consensus without critical reasoning or evaluation of the consequences or alternatives. Groupthink is based on a common desire not to upset the balance of the group of people. An example of groupthink was many years ago when a certain Korean airline had a culture of people really showing extreme respect to the captain of the airplane. No one would ever question the captain, and the captain's word was law. Now, because no one was able to question the captain, that led to a type of groupthink where everyone just obeyed what the captain said. In a very short space of time, this airline actually had several planes crash. The air crash investigators, once they analyzed what was really happening, realized that this was a type of groupthink that was costing people's lives. And even though it was not intentional, turned out to be a type of antisocial behavior. Groupthink is always quite common in authoritarian societies or even in gangs where the group consensus to not upset the balance always remains the same and that is when really bad things can happen. Whenever an act of extreme violence is perpetrated, humans are always shocked. But violence has always been a part of the human story. If you think about it, history books are filled with atrocities committed by humans. Now behind that violence is usually aggression, which is a behavior directed towards others that is intended to cause harm. Now, 
there are two types of aggression that we'll look at today. And the first is hostile aggression. This is an emotional, impulsive driven aggression that is intended to hurt the person, even if it results in damage to personal relationships or property. It's usually a response to pain, perceived danger, and it's very much in the moment. But then there's instrumental aggression. Instrumental aggression is the result of deliberate planning where the aggressor plans to hurt others. They do not always have personal feeling towards the person that they are hurting, but they still take the action. Many times bank robbers or terrorists, they use instrumental aggression because they want to use that instrument to have a certain effect like causing terror. Two researchers named Bushman and Anderson tried to work out how video games or even media would influence violent behavior in young people. So in 2002, they conducted a study with 224 undergrad students who were part of a psychology course. Now, the participants were told that they were helping researchers to select stimuli for future studies. They were then randomly assigned to play either a violent or a non-violent video game for 20 minutes. They were tested individually and had to complete three ambiguous stories. The car accident, persuading a friend, and going to a restaurant. They seem like pretty tame topics, but then each story ended with what happens next. Participants had to suggest what the main character in the story would say, think and feel if the story continued. After this, participants were debriefed and none reported any suspicion that the study was investigating aggression. The study found that people who had played a violent video game for just 20 minutes were more likely to assume that a potential conflict situation would be handled aggressively. There was an increase in aggressive content in thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Bushman and Anderson used this research to create the general aggression model. Now this model, the general aggression model, is a comprehensive integrative framework for understanding aggression. It considers the role of social, cognitive, personality, developmental and biological factors on aggression. So they tried to look through this general aggression model at the detail of how a person and the situation influences the way people think feel, how aroused they are, and which in turn then affects the way that they appraise situations, the decisions they make, and which in turn influences aggressive or non-aggressive behavioral outcomes. Practically going through the steps of the general aggression model might look something like this. First there are inputs, then there are routes followed, and then outcomes in a social encounter. Imagine this, a young man puts his phone down on a table and then turns around to get some food. As he turns back, the situation is that his phone is gone. Now these are the inputs into the situation. The next step is the roots that he follows. There's an internal state, so he feels emotion, maybe a little bit of anxiety that his phone is gone. He immediately thinks someone must have taken it. That's his cognition. Then the arousal follows, which really makes him angry and ready to fight. 
then he starts scanning the room and then he has to appraise what's happening as he looks down he sees a cute little two-year-old girl holding his phone suddenly as he appraises the situation he realizes there's no threat the phone is not gone a little toddler merely picked it up he goes to her with thoughtful action and says can i have it back please she gives it to him and a very peaceful resolution to the problem the situation could be very different can you imagine the inputs are exactly the same it's a young man he puts the phone down on the table turns around to get some food he turns around he goes through the same affect feels a bit of anxiety the same thinking someone must have taken it the same arousal and then as he scans the room he sees another young man put a phone exactly like his with the same cover into his back pocket as he walks out the door now he immediately takes impulsive action by rushing forward grabbing the other man by the shirt and screaming why did you take my phone pulling it out of his pocket and acting aggressively now this is a violent social interaction the general aggression model now looks at all these different inputs of the person the situation the emotions the cognition the appraisal of the situation and then whether there's thoughtful or impulsive action and that leads to either an aggressive or a peaceful approach to the social situation it is undisputed that media has a tremendous effect on the way that young people are shaped the reach of it is now almost complete with almost every child having a phone in the pocket a laptop at their disposal and a television in their home as the messages that are portrayed by the media flood into their minds it is inevitable that some of the messages of what reality is like how one should conduct yourself and what true entertainment is will be shaped by these media influences several studies have been conducted into how gaming and television could influence the behavior of children and also their perceptions of violence now it is universally agreed that one of the things that it does is that it desensitizes them and dulls them to the effects of violence which allows them to see even more and more violent things without it evoking the feelings of disgust and horror that would usually be perceived it does not necessarily make them more violent but it does lead to more violent thoughts it also then gives them a script which to act out violent video games do not necessarily make young people more violent and violent tv shows do not make young people more violent but when they get into a situation where violence is an option the script is already written and as humans we like to follow the scripts that we are given and our perception of reality might actually perceive something as more violent than what it really is and that is why many young people with violent thoughts or angry thoughts might go into violent action once the situation is right and they can play the script that they've been given even though the negative effects of gaming are highlighted all the time actually gaming and social media can have very positive influences on young people they can interact with other friends they can learn to solve problems think creatively 
there are many opportunities for them to actually do these beautiful things. One of the concerns, however, is that a large-scale survey by Australia's Interactive Games and Entertainment Association highlighted that young people were spending way too much time on screens and that they were exposed to way too much violence. They also found that children who are constantly exposed to violent multimedia are more likely than other children to engage in aggressive behavior. And that means that exposure kind of desensitizes you and normalizes that kind of behavior. Craig Anderson, who also created the general aggression model, he found that children who played more than 20 hours of violent video games a week had decreased positive social interactions, increased aggressive behavior, and that these kids were more likely to actually engage in violent behavior if the situations should arise. Now, there's also caution from the American Psychological Association that we shouldn't just jump to conclusions that gaming is the cause because the evidence is not quite there to make a clear case that that is what is happening. Studies show that social media actually amplifies what would have normally just happened in the playground, but children can't escape it because they take it home with them in their pocket. For mostly boys, social media leads to more jokes, gaming, and other interactions with their friends, the same as what they would have had in the playground. Sadly for girls, there is a devastating impact on their self-esteem as they compare themselves to others. The dramas that would usually have been in the playground are now amplified on the social media, which leads to bigger dramas and pulling more people in. And then, of course, there is the scourge of cyberbullying, where people can't escape the cyberbullies because the constant barrage on them is there day and night. And many young people do not have the self-discipline or an adult willing to get them off the social media to keep them safe. With all this said, social media is not all bad. It is also a great way for young people to interact with each other and make friends, especially those who are a little bit left out, now have a global audience that they can befriend. Thank you for joining us in this episode, discussing what makes people behave in pro-social or anti-social ways. Next time, we'll be talking about why you find other people attractive and others don't really do it for you. Until next time.